Hey, and welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I'm your host. I'm so glad to be with you here today because I've got one of my good friends, Brian Brown. Brian Brown is the pastor of Trinity Church Denver. I've had the pleasure of preaching down at Trinity Church. It's always a fun experience because they're Presbyterian, which means they don't emote very much. Uh, and that's not a critique on his church, Brian. That's not a critique on your church. That's just reality of the situation. So many of the jokes that I tell at the well, and yes, believe it or not, I can tell a joke in a sermon. I would look out at the audience and I'd be like, I don't, I think I fell flat. I think this sermon's not connecting, but I always get a good reception. They're very hospitable people. And Brian has planted a beautiful church in Denver. And so Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's good to be here, man. And it also might be because you're not funny. That that's a fair assessment. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Brian, you wrote a book on Nietzsche and I think I'm saying his name right. And it could be Nietzsche or something like that. But I wanted to get you on because recently I've seen um, some literature of his going around, some some ideas of his going around, whether it's on Ars Politica or other podcast. And in high school, when I went to a Christian school, when they talked about Nietzsche, it was always in the negative. You know, he said things like God is dead or, or other things. And he was used to justify, uh, in at least what I was taught, justify Hitler's positions on a lot of different ideas. And so I'm like, what is Brian Brown doing writing a book on Nietzsche? Why would why would why would anyone want to do that? I thought his ideas were bad. So why, Brian? Why should we study Nietzsche? Um, Nietzsche gives us well, where to start? I mean, Nietzsche is is one of the most important thinkers I, I think that's been produced in the last three hundred years. Okay, um, and uh, it, it it's likely less due to people reading him and being influenced by him, and mostly. Um, he articulated a stream of thought that is predominant in our day. Um, the the difficulty with with Nietzsche, and I think you're already you're already pinpointing it, is um, he, he's he he never articulates a, a concrete philosophy. Um, okay. he, he's never saying, "Hey, this 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 is true." Therefore, you should go and do this. Um, his uh, famous line of his is that I am dynamite. Um, he, he never set out to produce a, a, a constructive philosophy. Um, he just wanted to tear down everything, oh, wow. um, which meant that he could be used by anybody. Um, and so he's been taken up by the far right. He's been taken up. He's massively influential, or at least his thought is, on, on the far left. Um, and so that's kind of how pliable he is. You, you can put him to use however you want to use him um, for whatever purposes you have. Because, again, like his goal was was simply to destroy what's there. Um, and so if you need a philosopher who's good at destroying things, um, plug Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> I, I became interested in him. Um, there were a couple different streams. First, like they just asked me to write, and it's hard to call this a book. It's more of like a pamphlet. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a study guide to Beyond Good and Evil. Um, I was asked to, to write that up. Um, they were trying to get um, a handful of different people to write study guides uh, to important pieces of literature. So they asked, asked if I would take on Nietzsche. So um, I began, I think they expected me to write it in about three months. Um, it, I took probably two years because I just decided to read a whole lot of Nietzsche and a whole lot of biographies of Nietzsche. Um, and uh, the, the further I dove in, the, the more interesting he became. Um, okay. He's an incredibly enjoyable writer for me when I read him. Um, he's funny. Uh and he's funny in a um, he's he's 
he, he's funny in a way of just complete and utter cynicism and sarcasm um, about pretty much everyone in the world. And, and, and he doesn't, he doesn't pull punches either direction. Um, he pretty much hates everyone. And, um, and so, uh, I, I became interested in reading like, oh, wow. Um, I enjoy reading cynical writers because they're usually fairly entertaining. Yeah. Um, and then you begin to see traces of his thought everywhere in our day. Um, more than traces, massive influence in, in our own day. Um, and he began to explain a lot of what, what I think is at the root of kind of modern, postmodern secularism. And, uh, and how, how much it is, is shaping the way people think or is the root of how people think. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's why I got interested in him. And I actually think it's why people should read him. Um, you should read him in doses and you should know just going into it, like, Hey, almost everything he's saying here is, is designed to deny kind of fundamental presuppositions about how not just Christians have viewed the world, but um, r- really anybody, <laughs> anybody prior to, well, pretty much prior to Nietzsche. Um, so, yeah. Did Nietzsche, did he come from a particular school of thought? Was he trained by certain people? Like, who did he associate with that gave rise to kind of his articulation of a non-philosophy or, a, you know, however you are, would articulate his worldview or or thoughts about reality. What, what, where did he come from? So one of the fascinating things to me about Nietzsche is he came from a long line of Lutheran ministers in oh. Germany. Wow. Um, and so his home was like deeply religious that he grew up in, um, extremely pietistic. So it was, it was very much shaped by um, religion as experience and religion as, um, as, pietistic exercises of concern for the poor, those kinds of things that comes out in his writing all over the place. Um, I would say that there's not a, a single school of thought that kind of influenced him. Um, he, what, what you see him doing is essentially rejecting all schools of thought. <laughs> and so, um, he, he sees the enlightenment. He sees the enlightenment as, uh, as the death of God and the, the first opportunity humanity has had to be truly free. Um, and, uh, and he, he steps into all these different philosophical schools, these movements that are happening in Germany, in Europe at the time, where the Enlightenment is all the rage. Atheism, free thinkers are, are, are kind of coming to the fore. You've got massive urbanization happening in Europe during that time. Um, and he's looking at basically the, the, the failed aspirations of the Enlightenment. Um, to, to actually finally be free of God and all of the, the constraints that's come with that. Um, he, he looks, uh, actually, the interesting thing about Beyond Good and Evil is he takes a bunch of swipes at Christianity, but his biggest target in that work is is not Christians, it's atheists. <laughs> um, he, he essentially looks at um, Enlightenment philosophers in Europe and says, um, you guys are... are are seeing this merely as an excuse to explore whatever sexual appetites you have. Um, when the opportunity that's been given to us with the death of God is, is the, the freedom to actually break free of all constraints, um, to, to actually see mankind rise to the Uberman or the, the, the Superman above and beyond the herd above and beyond um, any sort of slave morality um, that Christianity brought. And he saw actually carried on with this kind of, 
the, the kind of modern secularism that still held to some measure of objective truth, some measure of um, there, there is a reality out there. Um, he, he wanted to reject all of that. Let, let's reject um, not just moral norms. Let's, let's reject that the world has any form at all and remake the world however we see fit. Wow. And so is that would would the the kind of like common quote uh, that goes around, I am dynamite, would that be kind of a, a summation of kind of his approach in that way? Is that where that quote comes from? Yeah. Um, I, I was actually reading Chesterton this morning. I'm, I'm, I read Chesterton at the beginning of every year and he, he loves to take pot shots at Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, he, because Nietzsche's all the rage, he's kind of this in vogue thinker that, you know, cutting edge, cutting edge men are quoting and reading and, and philosophers are reading and quoting and, um, and, and until you begin to see that Nietzsche is like utterly and completely deconstructive, he's not trying to construct any world at all. He's simply trying to destroy what's there. Um, you, you, you won't understand it. Um, I found myself like, particularly when I first dove into him, like constantly looking, okay, like you've gone on and on and on and on about how bad this is and how weak men are and how weak society is. Um, and you've yet to give me something to a attain to. Mm. Um, all, all you've given me is um, a world to destroy. As soon as you like accept him as that's all he's trying to do. Um, you, you, you suddenly, I mean, I found him more entertaining that way. Sure. Is it fair to say like him coming at the enlightenment, like you described, and saying that the Enlightenment did kill God, then um, it, there seems to be a weird overlap with the post-liberal pre-modern critique of the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. which which would find agreement with Nietzsche in a sense that the Enlightenment did disenchant the world, or sought to, and the Enlightenment did uh, strip away kind of spirituality. And when I hear that, I go, I agree with that. Like I, 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 I tend to agree with that. Is that why you see Nietzsche getting picked, picked up by some Christians and, and kind of appreciated for that critique? Yeah. Um, um, probably I, I think he, he recognized even the death of God quote, um, that's, that's less a statement of his theism. Um, although it could be, I mean, it, it is, um, it, but it, it, it's intended it, where it's been used, particularly in um, the gay science, as um, a statement of he's dead, but he still haunts us. Like, like we can't escape. Um, society can't escape. Man, man can't escape uh, this. E even if e even supposed atheists can't escape the fact that, like, they they still believe that the ruler is real. They still believe that, um, th that when you measure something, that's how, that's how the, the world still has a, a functional order to it. Um, and so I think he's being, he's been taken up positively to say like, those are, those are accurate observations he's making at the, about the world. His goal is different. <laughs> I mean, his goal is like smash the rulers, like s smash the frameworks, get, get rid of all of that. Let's, let's finally, evolve beyond uh, what mankind has been. Um, but his, his, I think the thing that haunts him his whole life is why can't we escape this? Like, why can't in the end, 
we've philosophically killed God. We, we've disenchanted the world. We, we've um, come up with all the philosophy we need to say the world is infinitely malleable. Um, why can't we finally just get rid of, of all the last vestiges of this? Um, that drove his rage. I think ultimately drove him to insanity. Mm. Um, although there's, there's other things that you know, genetic things and other things that might've come into play in his insanity. Um, but, but in the end, like, yeah, he did. Uh, it's actually a hilarious and funny story and sad story. I don't know if you like horses, it's a sad story. Um, <laughs> so he's in Turin. Um, and, uh, he sees a horse getting beaten and screamed at, and he runs over and grabs the horse by the neck to step between the man who's abusing this horse. Um, and then collapses in madness. And, and essentially the last 10 years of his life is this devolution into insanity. Um, wow. Ends up being institutionalized, um, having a series of strokes uh, that he finally dies from, succumbs to and dies. Wow. That's crazy. So you see That's... him as like in that scene, he's a, he's espousing at least some measure of morality, right? Like you shouldn't yeah, right. unnecessarily continue to beat a horse over and over again. Um and, and his, 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 one of his last acts as a free man um, is to try to save the horse from the beating. Um, and then immediately he starts, uh, his friends start getting concerned because over the next few months, they start getting letters from him um, where he signs the letters, the crucified one or Dionysus. Um, it's essentially trying to establish, I think, break free from the, uh, the, 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 the view of there's some higher being, there's some objective God, there's some objective reality to essentially say, no, I am God. I am God. I'm God. Like trying to reinforce it almost, wow. which it, it essentially drove him mad. What did he, I'm really curious if you were, if one was to imagine a world in which Nietzsche, his philosophy was taken up and people embraced <laughs> it and said, yes, this is the truth. This is what we will all do. What would that world look like in terms of governance? What would that look like in society? Would it just be uh, independent agents, no nations? How, how would his kind of vision of the world uh, look like today? Um, I think it would look like our world. <laughs> oh. oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> or at least increasingly the direction our world is going. Um, but but not because that's what he imagined. I, I, I think his vision of the world is so unsustainable. I think one of the observations that's been made um, is, uh, and it's, it's actually a critique I read recently of Carl Truman's book, which I think is a misunderstanding of Truman's book, um, is that they see that the fundamental problem in kind of the West is this kind of rampant autonomous individualism in which uh, we, we remake the world, we remake ourselves in whatever image we want. That's exactly what Nietzsche was aiming at. The, the the critique was that that um that the problem in the west is not fundamentally individualism but that we've collapsed into kind of a communitarianism so so that we but we actually just take on our our identity from those around us mm -hmm. so, so um you know recent surveys of the kind of the explosion of gender confusion among adolescents and, and how um even during covid i saw i saw one statistic show that they had <laughs> You, you had this massive proliferation of 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 um, adolescents ident identifying as homosexual or opposite gender or gender confused or whatever the, um, the, the different identities they took, and then, but you stick them in their home, 
um, away from their peers, away from a place where those identities take on certain social social benefits. Um, and suddenly everybody kind of regressed back into normal, into male, female, um, mostly heteronormative kind of categories. Right. Um, and, and so I think that that actually exposes the fact that we're, um, we, we, we like to imagine ourselves as being the Uber, Uberman, being the, the Superman, being the one that remakes the world, remakes our bodies, remakes sexuality in whatever terms we see fit. Um, but what we've actually, what we've actually found ourselves is like, that's un absolutely unsustainable. Um, and, and it, it collapses, it collapses into, um, a, a communitarianism where we're, we're, there is no such thing as the individual. We, we actually are always embedded in a society, always embedded in a culture, always embedded in relationships with other people. Um, and this is where, uh, Gerard has written, Rene Gerard has written quite a bit on Nietzsche. Um, and, uh, and, you know, foundational to Gerard's whole philosophy is that we don't know what we want until we see somebody else have something. Huh, um, right. In other words, uh, so it's kind of the anti-Nietzsche um, mode, mode of kind of understanding society. And um, in this, Nietzsche would say, like, no, no you, should, you should want what you want, regardless of what other people have. You should pursue power. You should pursue your, your will to, to its own end. Um, and, and Gerard's, I think, critique of that would be to say that that's simply not the way human beings are made. That's not the way they work. Um, so I think you'd end up getting a society where people are, are pursuing their own will to power. Um, I think he gross, I think Nietzsche grossly underestimates the power of sexuality. Um, and so when you, I, th I think if you get what Nietzsche wants, it, it's going to become deeply corrupted by sexual desire um played out wherever we want to see it and um and i think he he aims at something that's completely unsustainable it's um psychologically soul crushing um if if i want to be my own god and really live out the full implications of that reality um i, I i'm gonna be <laughs> i you, you just can't I, I don't think you can psychologically stay in that place and not immediately find yourself, not immediately, but, but eventually find yourself in a place of utter despair or, or just kind of lying to yourself your entirety of your life saying, I'm an original, I'm unique. Right. Um, when in reality, you're just mimicking whatever you, whatever appears to be unique around you. Yeah. This was one of the hardest lessons for uh, Kim, my wife with her business. Um, Cause she started with Etsy and she was making all these things and in the Etsy world, you have a bunch of creators who think they're originalist, but they're all just kind of inspired and copying one another. And so they're yeah. constantly fighting over copyright issues or like, you know, you stole my idea. And so Kim would be so flustered because she would make something and then somebody else would mimic it. She's like, they stole my idea. And I was constantly like, Kim, like, I don't, I understand why it looks that way. Cause it's the same product. So like, I get why you see that also like maybe consider, you know, that, that your idea came from someone else. And so I gave her a book, I think it's called steal like an artist. And, uh, and she was so, when I gave it to her, she did not like it at all because she was like, no, I'm an original. And I was like, I, I'm original. I, I love you for that. I know, but like you need to. And so over time she kind of grew to understand that much better, but it, it can be really hard as a, as a young person in our world, our kind of postmodern world where you're, 
you're told, you know, you can be whatever you want, you can do whatever you want. And you're the expectation, the burden to carry as an individual is, well, I've got to identify the right career path that's uniquely suited for me. That's my special calling and like all these things. And it's just an unbearable weight that people, people carry in our world. It's really sad. And I think it leads yeah. to a, to a lot of chaos for a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. What, um, what about his critique of pietist of the Lutherans? Cause I want to hear his, I want to hear his critique of both the atheist and the pietist, but for any listener of my podcast, you know, I've presented uh contra piet pietism, uh, not piety, not holiness, not sanctification, not uh, all that good stuff. I've written a book on that. I care about that. I'm talking pietist. So maybe if you want to tell me his understanding of pietism and then his critique of pietism, I'd be really interested in hearing more about that. Yeah, so I'm not aware of a place where he addresses pietism specifically. Um, I, I would say that, that the Christianity he's primarily aiming at, um, in his own understanding, would have been largely a pietistic one. Okay. Um, so so we, we can speak to his, I can speak to at least, maybe somebody else knows if he took on pietism in a more specific way or, or distinguished different strands of Christianity. I, I don't. I don't see him doing that in any of the writings I've read, um, any of the work I've studied. Like he, he just kind of treats Christianity as kind of a whole, uh, as part and parcel. And his main critique is it's a slave slave morality. Um, it leads people to do what he would say is, um, it, it's a kind of morality that that champions the weak, champions self sacrifice, champions, um, uh, in his view, champions kind of self um, self mutilation. Um, and, uh, rather than celebrating strength, celebrating, um, that which would overcome. So, so, uh, overcome everything. And, um, and so his critique of, of Christianity is essentially it's weak. <laughs> um, it's, it's pathetic. It's, um, it leaves people enslaved to weakness, um, and uh, afraid of, of strength, afraid of their own strength, their own morality, their own desires. Uh, when I when I hear that, I immediately think there's something to that. Um, oh yeah. I mean, what do you see there as a fair assessment, and where would you point Nietzsche to a a biblical perspective? Yeah, I think um, there there is uh, you know as we understand what Christianity I think should be biblically, um, there there is a model of strength that is good, a, a kind of strength that, that absolutely sacrifices itself for others, uh, but is still fundamentally strong. Um, that there is a, um, a, a morality that and at one level, my, my, my response to Nietzsche would be, um, he would just yell at me and spit probably, but, but uh, <laughs> would be to say that like, this is simply a better way to be human. Um, uh, one, you, you've misunderstood certain aspects of what, what Christian strength, what, what strength is. And, and two, um, that there is something profoundly good about loving your neighbor. Um, that is a better way to live than not loving your neighbor. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think, I think the question that, that Nietzsche wouldn't, he would just reject offhand, but I think it's it's the the question that he can't and and he should be brought back to over and over again is strength to what end? Hmm. Um, so I, I would agree that like strength in and of itself isn't evil, 
but strength has to pursue um, objective ends and objective goals. Um, he rejects ob objective ends, objective goals, and, um, and and essentially would say strength used to serve any objective end is redefining strength as weakness. I mean, even down, just become a slave. Wow. Um, and and I, I would want to argue that that's what humanity was made to be in one sense. We, we are made to be servants of God. We're, we're made to use whatever strength God has um, given to us that he's wired into us, whether that's uniquely masculine strengths or feminine ones, um, that those strengths should be, should be used to, to serve God and for God's ends and for God's, God's goals. Um, and, and that a strength that is aimless, that a strength that doesn't aim at any particular objective, um, is just chaotic and, and ultimately will devolve into, um, kind of an un, uh, unexamined slavery to our appetites, which again, going all the way back to what would it look like if this was played out in our time? I think that's what we actually see is right. um, a, a slavery, a, a strength that's simply served, um, that's simply utilized to serve um, the basest of appetites in our own society. Uh, nothing noble, nothing virtuous, nothing good. Um, just a strength that, that serves my need to have an orgasm in a certain way or, or my want or my desire to dress a certain way um, or to gain the approval of, of other people. What about his understanding of powers? Fascinating to me. And here's mm -hmm. why the Christian discourse around the idea of power to me has been fairly abysmal recently. Um, <laughs> it's because it, it's fairly just dismissive that power is ever at play, that it's worth anything or that it should be pursued. Um, this plays out in discipleship. This plays out in church meetings. You know, um, a lot of pastors get in ministry and you and I could probably tell stories about this where we don't appreciate the power dynamics in an elder board, where we don't appreciate the power dynamics between a pastor and church member, um, even, mm -hmm. even in a marriage. And so uh, this often gets played out with, when people talk about politics, people will accuse the right or the left or anyone as they're just, it's all about raw power, just controlling other people. And so Nietzsche's perspective is power in itself is something to, to pursue. Um, how do you reconcile kind of like Nietzsche on one hand, where it's just raw power. And on the other hand, you've got kind of uh, evangelical subculture, which just dismisses either that power exists or that power is created by God and hierarchies are natural. What do you, what do you make of that kind of tension? Yeah, so I, I think one you'd want to you'd want to distinguish, particularly when talking about Nietzsche, um, strength and kind of our modern, I think largely shaped by kind of Marxist understandings of of power, um, societal power. So the way that we talk about it often, power is embedded in political structures, societal structures, relational structures. And when Nietzsche talks about strength, he wants to he wants to liberate it from all of those structures. Um, it's not um, like when he talks about the will to power. Um, he, he's not talking about my ability to somehow gain influence over, over people. Okay. Um, he's talking about my will to do what I want to do to accomplish and build a world that I want to build. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so he, he, he hated the communists and he hated the Nazis. Um, because both of them for him represented, um, represented kind of communitarian, like dependent slave um, frameworks. Um, he had a, a pretty big falling out with Wagner 
um, kind of the champion of German nationalist nationalism, um, largely because because Wagner he, he saw Wagner taking on kind of this like pre-Nazi German identity, um, and he saw it as sentimental and weak. Uh, that <laughs> that uh, um, which is why it's funny. Like Nietzsche is used to to say, well, you know, this is the philosophy behind the Third Reich. Um, that's, that's not actually the case. Um, Nietzsche's sister took a collection of like posthumously published writings, altered them, added to them, um, because she was a Nazi and her husband was a Nazi and wanted to see them, wanted to, you know, kind of cast her fame, her, her famous dead brother as, um, kind of a proto Nazi. Um, when every, everything I think you see in Nietzsche is he, he would have hated fascism. Um, and he absolutely hated communism. Um, and so when we start talking about power, uh, in, at least in the way that you're talking about, um, you're, you're talking about it in terms of the, the, the framework of relationships, the framework of politics, the frameworks of institutions. Um, that, that's, not, that's not really coming into play with Nietzsche. Um, it, it, I mean, you could extend his thought and apply it to those areas. Um, but in the end, uh, I, I would say <laughs> um, that, that the same thing that I would say about strength um, would go for power. Um, power is neither good nor bad. Power is just power. Um, and, and so the question always comes to what end, um, mm -hmm. to, to, to whose service? Um, is it the service of God and the objective or biblical good of people? Then great. Get, you should have all the power we can get, we can put in your hands. Sure. Um, if it's power to serve your own ends, um, your own kind of self-satisfaction, then um, that's power wielded or strength wielded to a, a terrible end, an end that will destroy you and hurt people. Right. As a kind of thinking about that, that spectrum that you just laid out, uh, either serving God or serving man, which all over the Bible, this is a, a biblical truth. This isn't me trying to find a third way. This is just like, this is the way Jesus teaches. And uh, how, do, how do you reconcile when you, and I know this is personal, but like all of us are kind of a mixed bag of desires. When we become mm -hmm. born again, when we're regenerate, uh, we desire the things of God, but we still have remnants of sin. And so in some of those desires to serve God, you said, give that person all the, theoretically, give that person all the power we can give them because they want to serve God. Yet at the same time, we know that people are fallen. People have mixed desires, even in our service of God. It can be mixed because it can be motivated by uh, a variety of factors uh, that may not be directly oriented towards God. So how do you navigate that both you as a man, but just in, as you pastor other people, like, what does that look like for you? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is where you know, the, the fundamental weakness in Nietzsche's thought comes into play. Um, he wants to abandon all standards, right? So, so um, I think oftentimes uh, in a highly psychologized age, we, we, we try to, we, we try to parse motives. We try to parse like what possible, you know, self-serving motive might I have in this case, it's coming into play for me to do this thing. Um, and, uh, and, and the reality is, is like, none of our motives are pure, right. um, ever that I'm aware of. Um, like there, there's always, at least on this side of, 
of the resurrection going to be um, remnants of sin, the flesh, um, the devil uh, that I can't identify. <laughs> like I just, um, and so the, the beauty of what God's given us is an objective standard, like a, a an actual measuring stick of um, that, that defines for us the nature of love, that defines for us the nature of good, of justice, of righteousness, of those kinds of things. Um, and, and so in the end, uh, you, you want to, I find a lot of people like deeply and constantly troubled by the the motives the 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 wrong motives they have that might be feeding into their decisions to do objectively good things. Mm. Um, and uh, and so I think that's kind of the beauty of what the gospel does is it, is it allows us the freedom to like do what's right. And repent of our motives wherever we need to. Yeah. Um, and, and not go like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this right thing because, you know, somewhere in the back of my head, I'm hoping this person will notice it and and uh, say see me as a good person. In the end, like God's given us His standards, really, really clear standards, and so we live according to those standards. We seek to obey those standards. We we seek to love people in the way that the Bible defines love, but we seek to. Um, to, to do all the things the Bible commands us to do. Um, we fail at that. Sometimes we do things the Bible shouldn't tell us to do. We repent of that sin. Um, but then we, we, we should live with a, a certain, a certain kind of freedom that, that allows us to just do what is right and good without constantly having to look over our shoulders and go like, Oh, well, I'm, I'm sure somewhere pride came into play there. or I'm sure somewhere um, greed or arrogance came into play there. Um, and instead go, um, I wake up every morning, I pray, I confess my sins, I ask for God's help, um, and, and as, as best as I can, believing that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and also believing he's Lord and he's spoken in a book, I want to seek to obey that as best I can and do what I can. Um, not not getting too hung up on all the, the myriad of things coming into play in any decision um, that might be the wrong motives. Um, because like, here's the reality and we, we don't have to go keep, we can get back to Nietzsche in a second, but like, um, if, if I'm aware of like potentially three motives in any par particular decision. Mm. So let's, let's say there's a homeless guy on my street. Um, as there are. And, uh, and for whatever reason, I go like, I'm going to help this guy get a place to stay tonight. Um, and let's say, as I look at that, I think well, one, I'm a pastor this could be a great sermon illustration someday, but I helped to help the guy. <laughs> yeah. Two, there's probably some genuine love for this man that says, hey, I, I want you and your family to have a place to sleep tonight. And three, like, I really hope my neighbors who aren't Christians see me, the pastor on the, on the block, do this good thing. They'll think really highly of me. So, like, there's three motives maybe I'm aware of, mm -hmm. right? One sinful, one one good, righteous motive and one that's questionable. Sure. Um, like those are three I'm aware of. The reality is, is there's probably 50. Yeah. Um, and, and 50 I'm not even aware of and couldn't figure out unless, you know, I sat in therapy for, for 30 years and somebody helped me diagnose whatever happened when I was 14 that led me to this <laughs> desire to whatever. Like there, there's so many like competing desires in my heart. Instead, what I go is like, hey, what does the Bible call me to do for my neighbor? Let me just do that. Right. Um, and not be constantly asking and parsing what could possibly be going on in my heart or my emotions that would be feeding this in a way that's sinful. 
Um, like I'll never know those things. Like this is why God's grace is so powerful and good. He forgives sins. I don't even know I've committed. Mm. Um, like I, I'm then because of that free uh, to just do what he says. I love that. That's beautiful. That helps me a lot. I, this is something I've wrestled with my whole life. I don't know if it's, I'm sure it was pre-Christian, but just it, it can lead a lot of people to paralysis, I think, especially if they have a more mm-hmm. pietistic bent where they fail to act or be, you know, they become perfectionistic where if it's not perfect motives, then I'm not going to do it because I might sin. I had one uh, advisor counsel me when I was uh, wanted to go for a PhD because I was worried that I wanted, I was like, it would be fun to be called doctor. Uh, now, after 2020, not so much. Um, but, it, you know, back then I was like, it would be fun to be called doctor by other people. That would, it's kind of a sign of respect, but I'm worried that I, I, I want that too much. And he's like, just go get the thing and then have something to repent of later. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> and I think that's, that's framed for a lot of men, particularly Christian men, uh, where it's like, look, just do what is right and good. And, you know, till the soil in front of you and repent as you go. Uh, rather than mm-hmm. kind of being uh, held hostage by this navel gazing and this constant de- self doubt of what God has called you to do, do what is right and good according to God's word, and uh, and know that the grace of God goes before you, and uh, there's there's enough for each day as you need mm-hmm. to repent. Um, so I think that's a really good word. Um, so whether think, go ahead, I think too like this is part of the the modern day appeal of Nietzsche. It is that. Um, he he essentially is this loud voice shouting in German with a big mustache, like <laughs> get rid of all that crap. Like, like quit all of that motive parsing is like um, all of that trying to discern whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing is, is entirely the wrong question. You need to be free of all of those questions. Mm. The problem with Nietzsche is he, he wants you to be free of all that without giving you any sort of direction on what you should do. Right. So, so I think humanity is always going to look for some story, some measure, some standard by which to understand, Hey, what, what should I do in this case? Um, and, and he, he, he refuses actually adamantly refuses to actually create any standards to, to actually subject humanity to any standards. And instead just says like, no, like be utterly free of all standards. And if your will to strength, he would never say you should give money to the, to the homeless guy you should you should probably slaughter the homeless guy oh um, um, <laughs> um like the homeless guy is a is a weak drag on the rest of us um you you, you can't be free you need to be free of of all moral obligations whatsoever which is the why the title the title of the book is beyond good and evil hmm. it's not a new good and evil it's beyond it like it, that's the old way of viewing the world the problem with Christianity, the problem with with that that remains even with an atheistic thinking in Europe at the time is that there is such a thing as good and evil, and he's wanting to go like no 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 like we, we it's time now for us to move beyond those categories at all. Wow, yeah, I want to be a stick of dynamite in that. That's that's fascinating, and that, yeah, it makes sense why you know as I'm hearing you talk about Nietzsche, I'm I'm like going like I can see the appeal of that. I can see the appeal mm-hmm. of that. Um, but it's really helpful for you to kind of critique. And I'm assuming, is this what goes on in your book as a worldview guide? Is this, is this some of the stuff you get into to kind of help people kind of uh, whether they're reading Nietzsche or they're uh, or they're just familiar with some of his ideas. Is that what you get into in the book? Yeah. It just, um, you know, it's, it's all, 
uh, it's all built around beyond good and evil. Um, and so just tracking some of the background, what's his argument, what's he actually holding out? And then why in the end is this like bankrupt? Um, why, why is it ultimately going to fail? Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I, I would say like one of the things I truly begin to admire about Nietzsche and I admire this anywhere I see it is here's a man with a, a worldview that wants to, it is absolutely adamant that it must be pushed into the corners. Um, let's go all the way with it. If you're going to say there's no God, great. Yeah. So let's go all the way with the idea that there is no God. Um, if you're going to, in the same way that I think this is, this is something that I think we can learn as Christians from Nietzsche. Um, I think there, there's so much in, I've, I've just in recent days, you know, observing it in all of the debate around Christian nationalism um, is, is this kind of the, this, we've maintained this sort of quasi middle ground where we don't live consistently at all um, with any sort of approach to reality. If God is irrelevant to politics and like be done with him, like be done with him there. But if God is God, no, if he really is God, then, then why would we stop short or be embarrassed by the fact that like, no, then he actually has a whole lot to say about how society should be structured. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and, like let's let's be consistent in our thinking and our worship um and therefore consistent in our living and in our applications of that living to the world like if god is god let him be god if he's not god then let's quit, quit pretending like he's god over my little heart hmm. in the closet like or he might be god over my particular approach to morality like if he's god then he's god then let, let's live like he's god if he's not then i think nietzsche makes a lot of sense right i think it doesn't work right <laughs> because yeah. There is a God um, and the world actually exists. It actually has form. It actually, you're subject to your body. You're subject to the world that, that works the way that he designed it to work. But like this kind of quasi middle ground where um, we kind of pretend like, hey, God, God matters over here, but he doesn't really matter over here. If he does, he only matters because he influences me privately. Um, I, I think this is the exact sort of thing that would have just, piss Nietzsche off sure. of like, Hey, if God is God, then like, I mean, at one point there's a quote, uh, I'm tempted to look for it. Cause it's really funny. You can find it <laughs> but he essentially it. says it's because it's, it's simply because of the weakness of Christians that they don't burn us all. Because <laughs> 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 if Christians live consistent with what they say is true of God, then like, if I'm out here saying what I'm saying, they would, they would come and find me and burn me. And that would actually be something admirable in them if they did burn me. Wow. Um, but because they're weak, <laughs> because they're weak, they just let us kind of roam around and say whatever we want about the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is funny. Well, it sounds like the book would be really helpful. You said, obviously you were joking. It's kind of like a pamphlet, but I look forward to getting a I'm copy. Not it actually is kind of like a pamphlet. It's very <laughs> Um, where can people pick it up? Is it do they go to Canon Press or where can people? Yeah, I think it? it's on. I think it's on Amazon or Canon Press. Um, I think Canon actually has uh, a version where you can buy um, Beyond Good and Evil, and it, they just they stick my my study guide in the back of it, so you can kind of go great. back and forth and look stuff up. So I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, well, I'll put up. Make sure to put a link to that. Is there anything else? I want to put a link to Trinity Church where people can listen to your sermons. Uh, which I thoroughly enjoy. And then anywhere else that you want people to find you, I know you're on Twitter, but not that active. Where else can uh, people find more of your writing and thinking? Um, 
I mean, I don't write enough. Uh, I, I get to reading and thinking and, and wanting to process things and don't want to say anything until I've processed it, which then that processing just goes on and on. Um, there, there's a blog on the church website that I write on. Um, try to write at least once a week on. Um, other than that, man, that, that's it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Brian. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey, if you're a listener and you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to share it with somebody else. Uh, I, I think Nietzsche is a fascinating thinker. Um, obviously I've learned a lot on this episode and maybe you could share it with somebody who also could learn a lot and y'all can grab a beer and talk about Nietzsche and freak some people out. Um, but if you want to sign up and support the show, Patreon is a great way to do that. You can sign up in the show notes. I'll put a link there. Any dollar amount helps. It just helps me bring great content like this to you. Uh, I know I've got my Patreons on there active. They're constantly asking me, uh, what kind of content I should produce, not just asking, they're telling me, which is great. It's actually really helpful and we can have great discussions on there. Be like so. Nietzsche, be free from their, ex- their, their constraints. Free. I, I just ignore, I just ignore Great, <laughs> great patron there. Um, but you can go sign up in the show notes there and we've got, who do we have coming up next? We've got Bethel McGrew, I think coming up. I'm recording with her and we're going to talk about Revoice, the PCA, Tim Keller, all that fun stuff. So you can look forward to that coming soon. Until then, we'll see you next time.